This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lumigo and Dexacure. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Brian Scanlon about scaling your startup. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 119. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, how you doing? Hey, Jeremy, I'm doing good. You could probably guess what I did this last weekend based on what I tell you mm. I do every weekend. <laughs> you are you are at another wedding. I can tell you there's something wrong with your voice. Were you screaming a lot or what was No, the... actually, I have a little bit of a cold. So working from home is nice because that means you don't have to worry about getting other people sick. Uh, I was actually at a art gallery where you're like Which oh that's what you do on the winter <laughs> yeah. how about you Jerry? the most how exciting person i know rebecca it's amazing <laughs> that's definitely not true well the good news is is when you do have a cold and you have to work from home it you, you're self-isolating so it's responsible to do that um so anyways well so i mean one of the things though with working from home and being disconnected with people is you don't get to communicate as much um with with customers and things like that and i think our guest today uh probably has done quite a bit of engineering to help communicate with customers do you want to uh you want to introduce him yeah, right you are, and I'm really impressed with that transition. I'm just gonna say that out loud. So our guest today is Principal Systems Engineer at Intercom and leads their developer infrastructure efforts. Um, he helps teams make products resilient to failure and scalable to customers' needs. And it is Brian Scanlon. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for letting me on your show. <laughs> we are happy to let you on our show, <laughs> if that's the words you wanna use, um, anytime. Can you, uh, before we dive too far in, can you tell us um, first, what is Intercom? Um, so even if people I think are unfamiliar with the brand, they've likely or almost certainly used it. You have over 25,000 customers. So maybe um, help people understand this, this, this thing that they don't know they've probably used multiple times over. Yeah, so Intercom, these days we call ourselves a conversational relationship platform um, and we help businesses build relationships, talk with our customers. Um, in, in the real world, everybody knows us as this little thing that pops up at the bottom right-hand corner of um, most popular, you know, trendy SaaS companies. Um, and it's, yeah, it's grown pretty well. Uh, I've been working at Intercom now for uh, seven years and uh, of the 10 years that Intercom has been around. Um, and yeah, these little chat pop-ups, um, they've turned into like a decent business um, and we think we're, we're think we're pretty good at it um, we like provide um, conversational marketing um, and customer engagement but mostly support you know people really like to uh, use messengers use um, this way of kind of talking to their customers um, and so a lot of our uh, what our customers use for is really to, to help customers do everything from onboarding to uh, in, to help them problem solve, troubleshoot, and uh, you know engage and make sure that they're using their product well. 
Yeah, and I, I tell you that I I do love it, and it's it's funny. Um, my wife and I share this same sort of attitude. Like, we don't mind talking to people. We just don't want to talk to people like on the phone. You know what I mean? Like, we just like if you ever have to pick up the phone for customer service or something like that, um, and wait on hold and whatever. Like, I love just this asynchronous and sometimes synchronous. Like, if somebody's mm -hmm. on with with uh, with Intercom, um, you know, they can chat back and forth with you. Um, and then I think just all the tools. I mean, we've used it uh, at other companies I've worked for where it, you know behind the scenes and just being able to sort of segment those users and then you've got like knowledge bases and all kinds of stuff like that. So if anybody is running a SaaS company or want to provide customer service, definitely check out Intercom because it is a very, very cool, um, a very cool service. So the other thing about that is we're talking about, you know, not only the asynchronous chat messaging, the, the JavaScript that has to run on somebody's site to pop up, but then also... I would assume quite a bit of infrastructure that has to run behind the scenes um, in order to make all of this stuff work. So could you just give us sort of an overview, like, you know, sort of of the of the infrastructure itself and what kind of a massive system that is? Yeah. Um, so the most interesting part or way to start talking about it is that we pretty much have a, a Ruby on Rails monolith in the back end. Um, and, uh, you know, you hear, hear mostly about monoliths, about people like breaking them up into microservices and stuff, but we're actually pretty proud of our monolith. Um, we uh, have invested a lot in making it work well for us. Um, and, you know, a lot of the techniques actually are kind of similar enough in practice around the things we do to make it sustainable to work in the monolith. So um, we've got uh, basically internal services um, for important kind of functions. We've got clear ownership of code. We use techniques like marking up um, every line of, or every file, uh, every code file with uh, which team owns these things. And then we, do, we use techniques like surfacing these, automatically surface these, ta these tags into metrics generated by um, anything that um, is invoking the functions that are in, in, in the code. Um, we, we use AWS auto scaling groups in EC2 as like our unit of scalability. And we build one of these for every single asynchronous worker and every um, every different type of API we have. And so we, we've ended up with over 300 auto-scaling groups um, serving Intercom's needs that um, gives us this uh, you know, unit of deploy deployability for each of the different pieces of work that happens in a, either in real time or in the background to help Intercom, um, you know, Build the, the the product and to, uh, to 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 serve intercom, and um, this allows us like a good blast radius. It gives us these nice things to allow uh, teams internally to like have clear ownership over different things and make sure that different parts of intercom can kind of break and not break other different parts uh, different things. Um, we've also invested a lot in making sure that like deployments are fast, and you know when you're deploying to over. Uh, well over a thousand EC2 hosts across 300 mm -hmm. auto scaling groups, and you've got this giant Rails monolith uh, with like tens and th tens of thousands of tests to run. Um, it's taken a lot of work to get it to make sure that we can get this done reliably in like about 12 minutes these days. Um, and uh, like we've invested a lot of making sure making sure that things don't degrade to the point of where uh, you know we have to throw it in the bin and rewrite the whole thing in in some trendy microservice framework. 
Awesome. Well, so I think that if the listeners have been paying attention, they realize you were quite the expert on building these massively scalable, um, these massively, uh, massively scalable systems and running it on AWS and doing all this sort of stuff. And and again, this is a serverless podcast, and I know a lot of what you're doing uh, at Intercom isn't necessarily serverless, although I'm sure you probably use a lot of services themselves. But I think over the years you've come up with um, you know probably some good advice uh, or some some good lessons learned, uh, and you wrote an article. I don't remember how long ago it was, but it was titled like 10, uh, 10 technical strategies to avoid um, and then five to embrace. And I'd love to talk about those a little bit because I think this ties into serverless. And, and one of the ones that really stood out to me, uh, and we can get into a couple other ones, and, and Rebecca, feel free to ask some questions around this as well. Um, but the one that you talked about sort of containers versus serverless for your environments, because Five years ago, ten years ago, maybe when Intercom's getting started, you know, Ruby on Rails was was sort of the way to go. Um, you know, and uh, again, I still a big fan of monoliths too. So hug your monolith if you need to, because I, I I love uh, I love a good monolith when when it works. Um, but this idea that you kind of put out in the article was, you know, if you're day one starting your startup. Um, Investing in Kubernetes might not be the best thing to do. Can you explain why that's the case? Yeah, so I think one thing we're good at Intercom and what has been part of its success um, is uh, keeping the focus on delivery and keeping thing, the momentum of delivery of value for for your customers. Um, and we've we internally like we've written up our values and go through like how we. Act, like this actually works out in our technical strategies um, and there's a few different ways this kind of comes out but some of it is that we are technically conservative and what this means is we we don't um go about looking for the best technology for something if something is good enough we'd rather kind of iterate and just use something get started and go and kind of validate the whole reason why you're even building out this stuff in the first place quickly rather than spending a lot of time um, and uh I think like setting up Kubernetes day one, um, that doesn't sound like you're doing much work really to validate your startup in in many cases. Um, it's uh, it, you can probably get get there faster with something a lot more simpler. Um, and for sure, you know maybe there's there's um, there can be unique kind of spaces, and especially if you are selling into like people who use Kubernetes, then of course yeah, you 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 want to be using these kind of technologies. Um, but I think uh, the investment in these kind of uh, platforms comes out when you've actually got something that's worthwhile to migrate to them or to something that's big and uh, that's worth the investment. Um, and so just the, I think biasing for simplicity um, at all stages uh, at, while your startup is fighting for life uh, really is the, uh, the, the approach to kind of keep things viable and to keep things uh, focused on making sure on trying to get your startup to, to any kind of success. Um, and so, uh, you know, if 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 you're really fast at Kubernetes and you've done this all day, then sure, go for it. If that's the fastest yeah. way you can do to deliver value, but I think for most people, it's gonna slow you down, even though it looks like progress while you're building out this stuff. So, yeah, you mentioned the idea of being technically conservative, and I think another way that you put this before is run less software, and that might also like tend to this idea of like run less services, right? Run fewer services, and um. When it comes to like you know monoliths versus microservices, I'm wondering you know to microservice or not to microservice. And you say microservices can cause undifferentiated heavy lifting. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, 
And in, it's interesting, when I joined Intercom, we kind of had the expectation that we were going to, you know, as we as we grew up and became like a real company, we were <laughs> going to build out loads more services. And um, this was the way we started building out some features. So one of them was our webhooks. And so the initial implementation of webhooks in Intercom was this Java service and talked back and forth to the main Intercom monolith. And, you know, it worked and it scaled and um, it it. It uh, did its job, but over time, Intercom changed, people moved on, um, ownership of, of the webhook servers kind of moved from team to team. And it was kind of one of the only things we had written in Java for a long time, or there was only a handful of services. Um, and then people, like engineers who were kind of doing most of their work in, in Ruby or in JavaScript, uh, would kind of avoid doing anything with this Java stuff. Um, and it became a real pain operationally. Um, and so like zooming out a bit, what we saw in practice for us in our environment, so it's definitely not universal, was that teams were more effective working in the monolith and that uh, the, the doing stuff out of like the default way, the, the way that's known to be fast and that we're investing into, just slowed them down. And I think it held us back in terms of product development so because we were less uh, capable or uh, did, weren't working on the, the Java code base a lot. Uh, we just didn't build new features in that area. They were, it wasn't as easy to. Um, and so, uh, the I think what we what we learned from this um, and like we're not dogmatic about it, but like the the whole um, investing in the monolith, we did it and have invested further in the monolith, and indeed we've folded back the webhook service into the monolith since. And um, is that because we've observed that teams are more effective and enjoy working in the monolith where they get a lot of stuff for free as opposed to uh, where in services they have to start worrying about a lot of scaling and instance choices and um, observability and uh, hooking all these things up and design designing APIs and then figuring out uh, what data is authoritative for what and where to your caching. Like, there's all this stuff that um, that we give for free uh, effectively in, in, in the monolith. Um, and so the, the uh, running that software for us, what that looks like in practice and being technically conservative um, is that we try and uh, just reuse the same things over and over again. Um, and a lot of our services just look the same, or a lot of our features just look the same. It's it's a um, bun bunch of Rails, uh, and then that talks to a few memcache and MySQL databases. Then uh, it'll send off an SQS message somewhere, and then something will asynchronously process this stuff. It's all the same kind of building blocks. And um, keeping those um, the number of building blocks low uh, and just the amount of novel kind of bits um, uh, down to like as, as small as possible, we found uh, to result in like uh, strong kind of outcomes for us in terms of the how easy it is to operate these things and um, how fast teams can move with these things and build with these things. Um, so in terms of microservices and that, you know, there's like I think there's overhead. Uh, there's overhead in everything, but there's overhead in uh, just having to like design the, the coupling between them in uh, designing those kind of interfaces. And for sure, it can you can end up with kind of clean interfaces and get to a very clean architect architecture and be able to move it, individual parts pretty fast with them. But it's not the only way to get to those kind of areas. I think you can apply the same discipline to different types of code bases and different types shapes of architectures and have similar outcomes. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's funny to hear so many people who, I mean, again, I love microservices. I, I've done a lot of microservice design, but I also have done far more monolithic applications. Um, and if I had to weigh which ones were easier to deal with in the long run, it's always been the monoliths. Um, and I love, and that's one of the things that's interesting about serverless, um, to bring that back in a little bit, is the fact that 
you can still build sort of a monolithic, take a monolithic approach, have a lot of that, you know, sort of shared code and all in the same stack and so forth. But then you still have some knobs where you can turn up scalability on, on certain, you know, functions or whatever the services you're using there. Um, and I mean, there's a couple of other things you talk about in this article. You know, you talk about, you know, not make sure you use, um, you know, infrastructure as code or to, to not configure things through the console, right? So that you just have these repeatable patterns. I think these are just good, you know, smart things to, to kind mm -hmm. of do. Um, but one of the things, and maybe we move to this and, and we can certainly go back to the things you shouldn't do, but um, let's give some people some positives. Um, in terms of the things that you should do, uh, one of the things is you say bias towards the higher level services. And I always look at this as the build versus buy argument, right? Like if there's some something that gets you 80, 90% of the way there, then that might be good enough, especially if it saves you six months in development time. For example, it might be smarter to start with serverless than Kubernetes because mm -hmm. it could save you six months of development time just getting your environment set up. Yeah, big time. I mean, um, I, I in, used to enjoy running database servers myself, like running MySQL and, <laughs> and making sure backups work and uh, getting to a high availability setup and all that. Uh, like that's good fun. Um, and you can learn a huge amount from it. Um, but I think going for a, a higher level service in using the likes of RDS or even higher than higher level than that of um, some of the AWS services that try to take uh, entire workflows um, and may mean that you're not even just using the kind of lower level building blocks to to get to get these kind of get that kind of functionality. Um, I'm thinking in terms of things like work, like workflow engines and stuff like that. It's like you can build a workflow engine yourself on top of a uh, on top of a database, but plugging into a pre-made workflow engine, you know, you have to get used to it and you have to learn it and and kind of map your workflow onto it, but uh, but using these things, again, it gets you uh, faster to validating what the reason why you're building the thing in the first place. Uh, and I think that's a, uh, you know, like you said, you can get to 90%. Um, and then once you know what, what it is, what's holding you back, what, what kind of features are missing or, or what important parts you need to build yourself, um, you can do that after you've uh, saved a load of time and made progress by using a managed service. Uh, and so, and so we we do this in practice at Intercom even today. Like I think this is a good thing, not not just for startups, but anywhere that's really trying to do fast growth. Um, that um, I've helped a team recently uh, where they weren't sure whether it was pretty much a toss up between uh, writing writing their own piece of code to kind of do this kind of validation in in, in our data warehouse, um, or pick like an open source project which looked pretty good, uh, or use a service which does this. And I, I, I said like. Let's just use the service, uh, and we'll learn more from doing that faster than doing all the kind of grunt work with the other kind of pieces of code. Um, even though ultimately, what the using the service might tell us is uh, that we don't we don't want to use that service because the valuable bits are something else. Uh, but we wouldn't get to that knowledge faster if we hadn't tried um, uh, using something which was gonna fit most use cases already. So I think this is something that's good advice, not just for startups, for anywhere really moving fast and needs to experiment. All right, and the other thing that I always find is super interesting, whether it's a SaaS product you buy or a managed service um, or even an open source project that you know maybe has some some good maintenance is somebody already made a lot of decisions for you um, and they brought a lot of their own domain expertise 
into that, right? So especially if you're getting into something like, I mean, the, the database thing is a no-brainer because, again, I remember, I can't remember, well, I, I probably can, but I shouldn't remember how many databases I had to set up and manage over the years um, and do the backups and, and be like, oh, something's corrupted. Like, let's dig through transaction logs and try to figure out where that went wrong. Um, so those are the kind of things where handing that stuff off to somebody and not even having to think about it and really you're just worried more about your data integrity and making sure that, you know, things are being um, written correctly and that you're following whatever, you know, rules you want to follow for your own business domain. Um, but just bringing in that domain knowledge from other people and and having all those years of learning just baked in immediately, that goes beyond just having to build and manage the service. It just, it gives you experience and knowledge that could take you years to learn. Absolutely. I mean, uh, building on top of the shoulders of other giants <laughs> uh, is, is uh you know, you, you get that for free effectively by using these. Did you call me a giant? I'm building on top of other giant or is it? Okay. I think, yeah, we're all giants <laughs> building on top of other giants. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast. And if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end -end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing tool chain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in JIRA straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at Lumigo.io. Um. So I think a lot of this comes back to, right, like optimization, how good it feels so good when things are optimized, when things are efficient. And when you're working in the way that you feel most confident in that teams can run the fastest in that they feel like they're actually like making an impact and they can see that. Um, Jeremy, you know, hopped to some of the positive stuff. I want to take us back to the negative. Sure. So if we could just, you know, go back there for a second, you talk about, um, optimization in the terms uh, in terms of cost right and building for scale and optimizing costs and I love how you put it you put it in terms of snacking and you know we always like want to snack and say like oh I'm just going to take this little potato chip and then you know crunch this thing um but then that gets in the way of actually looking at a big picture business outcome of of your work and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about optimizations in terms of um like the pitfalls around that when people start to like zero in on, on snacking let's say versus like remembering this big picture for optimization for teams moving forward quickly. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the AWS cost optimization space. And a lot of the advice that you'll get are like, you know, 10 things to do, like you'll uh, turn off unused instances and um, maybe optimizing your EBS in uh, volume types and uh, deleting um, uh, IP addresses, elastic IP addresses that aren't in use and stuff. And like these things, they do cost money and, you know, it's uh, it's fun to kind of turn these things off or whatever. Um, but they rarely make 
significant differences to the, the bottom line. Um, they they can save a few dollars here and there, and it's kind of nice to kind of have a clean environment, maybe. But ultimately, the what affects your margins, what affects your uh, your cost growth, um, is like your architecture and how your your systems are built, and um, and for sure there like there are insights to get from your from cost tooling, from understanding where your costs are coming from, driving these things, and then making changes uh, what from how you understand these things. Um, and you know, there's there's uh, well known ways of like uh, on the billing level of in, in terms of committing to AWS using savings plans and uh, reservations and and uh, enterprise discount plans and stuff like that, uh, where you, where you can also save a huge amount of money. But the real stuff that that makes your business viable and uh, that uh, that matters in the long term is understanding the relationship between costs and your business and what like what's driving the, the the costs and the the big things that that make different that, that make a change are like architecture level changes or like the the implementation of of your service um and uh what we found that works well for intercom is uh being pretty reactive like not uh not not even trying to uh, optimize these things as we're building them um just just building as fast as we can and then seeing what the impact of cost is and then tracing them back uh to the change to the feature to the thing that we're doing as part of our product and seeing what kind of impact it had on costs um and so uh it doesn't it doesn't make it worth my while or it's not useful for me to go in and start digging into like let's say our lambda cost it's it's a very 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 small percentage it's not even a percentage of our overall bill i know it's there um, but it's not even worth optimizing um it's just a very very small thing uh whereas looking at how we de- the design and implementation of our javascript messenger and how that's sending data into um into our apis at scale that's a big thing that requires software changes that can make really really significant differences um so i think in, in the cost base there's lots of stuff to go after you can easily find um a few things which look like good things to to turn off and you can you know save save at times um what look like good individual pieces um, of money, but it's it's the overall architecture which is going to make your business make or break and going to uh, change change the margins that will make your business profitable or not. Yeah, and it and it's all about total cost of ownership too. I mean, this idea of you know, do you take a hundred and twenty five thousand dollar a year engineer and have them go spend a week trying to figure out how to save a hundred dollars a month on your lambda bill? Um, you know, these are the kind of things that you know it 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 may sound interesting, like hey, I saved us some money, but oh by the way, I just you know cost the company ten grand in order to do that. So uh, you'll never make that up in the long run. Um, so there's a I, I don't want to talk about this article the whole time. There's a, mm-hmm. a bunch of other things I want to get to. Um, but uh, and just uh, to touch on maybe some of those other things that you should embrace, especially as a startup. Um, you know, baking in security right from the from the beginning. I mean, that's one of those things where like I have so many scars from security issues. I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time. So um, it's like just build in security right from the start. Um, I love this concept or the the idea you had in there for hire for potential. Um, it's great to hire specialists, but generalists, you know, especially in a startup, are just so much more flexible and, and you know, you can go in different roads, uh, different paths and just get different ideas. I love that. Um, obviously, focusing on the customer 
is a huge part of building, um, you know, a, a building a startup. Like if you can't get customers to use it, like what's the point of building it? Um, but the continuous deployment, and we just had charity majors on, um, and we were talking about like this constantly be merging, like just small changes, like just keep getting code in there. Um, that's super important. I mean, we had a whole conversation about that, but you focus on this a lot as well. You mentioned deployment speed getting down, um, you know, CICD to I think 12 minutes to deploy to all those instances and stuff. So tell us a little bit more about sort of your philosophy and maybe Intercom's philosophy be, uh, philosophy behind just, you know, CICD and and how quickly you get you get changes out. Yeah, one of the early blog posts on Intercom's blog was titled Shipping is Your Heartbeat. And um, I think Charity herself has used it a lot of times uh, as a way of describing these things. But um, really, uh, there's, a, there's a good few ways of looking at it. But what the way we think about it is in terms of the what the shipping constantly brings to the quality of the product you're building. Um, the uh, coupling your engineers who are building product um, with how it's being used by your users um, and keeping that as close as possible uh, so that you're, you're, you're not just uh, building and walking away and not understanding it. You're building, shipping, you're seeing the feedback in real time, you're seeing the usage in real time. Um, and indeed, you, you could be talking to your users in real time using Intercom. I think it's really consistent with what Intercom is built about, about like uh, allowing this kind of conversation between businesses and uh, their customers. Um, this uh, way of building, we think, results in the highest quality products that we're, we're not doing huge amounts of upfront design and um, designers giving these massive designs uh, over to engineers to go and implement and uh, like lots of structure and process. And um, we want, uh, we, we found that uh, the the best projects, the best features we get out, the most kind of uh, most productive way of building um, really, really high quality product uh, is to get people on uh, into the same team with a strong mission, uh, with ownership of an area, and for them to iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate and really build the smallest sliver of a feature uh, possible get it out, see how it's used, um, and then keep on iterating. And so deployments are like, they're at a heartbeat. They're a part of this um, that results in the highest quality product. There are not loads of other nice things as well. Like operationally, it's easier to troubleshoot if you're right. deploying all the time and you're doing pushing small dips all day. Security-wise, you know, the confidence of knowing if we've got some sort of problem, we can fix it in 10 minutes. Like that's, right. that's a big deal. Um, but uh, as a product-focused company, we see just, a huge benefits in connecting the developer to what they're building um, and that speed element just allows them to like iterate get something out measure see how it's used talk to the users and get and and keep going um, and and that process results in a high quality product like intercom we think Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, you mentioned, you know, again, the the small diffs and getting changes out quickly or, or I mean, we talked about this with charity too. just like mm -hmm. the joy, the, the satisfaction level of a developer goes up as the, the time from commit to deployment goes down. Um, they're like, you know, they're like linked together. Um, but in terms of the speed of deployment, so you you have a very complex system with lots of, you know, EC2 instances, scaling groups, all that kind of stuff. Um, you said you got it down to 12 minutes. 
The speed of that piece of it though, right? Like I think you said before, it was like 30 minutes or something like that. So if you have an issue, um, you said you could, you know, maybe you roll it back, maybe you fix it, whatever it is, but um, like what are the absolute necessary checks that you need to have in there? Or just maybe a little bit more on why the speed of it is so important? Because again, waiting 30 minutes for a deployment is, is, is kind of painful. Yeah. Um, 30 minutes is definitely in, in the territory of where you push code and you kind of forget that you've done it. And you, it's like, it's, you, you almost have to set an alarm to check a dashboard of seeing when your stuff actually hits production. Um, and so that in itself makes uh, engineers just like uh, less engaged or, or less, even it distracts them from watching how things actually work in production or seeing where their stuff gets it. So get shrinking that down um keep keeps them closer to uh, what they've built gives them more information um and also it's it, it it results in better outcomes of where maybe something bad does get out um and they're less they're more likely to uh just be watching dashboards or or looking at the alarm channel or just around rather than trying to remember like trying to see who pushed pushed something 30 minutes ago maybe right. they're they're offline by now or whatever um so getting that down as short as possible and you know and honestly i'd love to get it a lot shorter than 12 minutes i think it's okay <laughs> Um, the, yeah, the interesting thing was like, we, we, we had, like when I joined, we, we had full CICD and, uh, it's been kind of, we've had some rocky times. We've invested in a lot, making it good. Um, but we kind of had a bit of a boiled frog in the boiling water situation, um, over some time of where, uh, the, the deployment times just kind of crept up and, it wasn't that we didn't want to do fast deployments. It's just we kept on adding on more stuff, like more safety checks, right. um, the ability for teams to control how fast they were deploying into individual uh, fleets. Um, you know, we had we have some fleets which are very sensitive to deployments and uh, just uh, need, need time to process jobs and can only take out certain amounts of capacity at times to to install new software. And so we built all this kind of safety stuff to make the, the environment uh, work well for a lot of different use cases. And all these kind of features, all these kind of safety things just slowed us down. And we saw them as all as individual successes. You know, we were happy that our environment was more safe or whatever. Um, but we realized this has gone this has gone too far. <laughs> like this, this is too long. Um, we need to dig in. Um, and then the interesting thing that came out of it was we dug in and we thought we might have to do uh, the kind of work that you might see at a conference talk. You know, uh, they took this <laughs> system and we replaced it with something brand new um, or, uh, yeah, we moved to microservices, whatever. Right. Um, but uh, what, what we ended up doing was uh, just real boring anal analysis of what where the time was being spent, what was driving that time, and there was um, some of it was down to a bunch of AWS features that we were kind of abusing. We we make heavy use of AWS Systems Manager uh, run commands to 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 orchestrate uh, the the software deployment across all of the hosts. Uh, we're kind of pushing it hard and um, we had to get better at doing that and we ended up talking to the AWS team. Um, but also we looked, analyzed the kind of fe safety features we did and realized we didn't have to do them all in sequence. We could do a bunch of them parallel, parallel. and then just change the environment so that uh, we didn't have to have as many safe, as many staggered kind of deployments that we could do like a big bang type thing, um, and get away with it by by changing the way we were doing deployments on workers. So 
there was no one big thing here that like suddenly shrunk our uh, deployment times down. It was just analysis of where all the time was being spent and a bunch of small changes, just 30 second win here, one minute win here. Um, and But that all those that work um, got us back down. Um, but we've been trying to hold it pretty tight since then. We've been, uh, we've been still making changes to the environment. We're trying to add more security into how we build. Uh, build our artifacts and and different things like that. But now I think once we've got the line down, we want to keep it there and sort of doing a better job of kind of reviewing every week what we're looking at in terms of deployment times and where uh, delays are coming out of it. Um, I think the, the moral of the story is that like we've decided it's important to us. Well, we always knew, yeah. but we decided, you know, we're kind of, this is important. We're going to keep it here. Um, and that takes constant effort to kind of keep something like that because I think the default is what we ended up in where things just drift over time and you get to the point of where, oh no, it's now taking 30 minutes. Yeah, and I think that's the, I mean, that's the point that I was just going to make is that you did the work and and you realized the importance of it. And I think that a lot of people um, or a lot of companies, they let that drift and they don't tie those metrics together um, and being able to optimize that. Now, again, had you switched to microservices, you could have had independent deployability and it would have been faster and then it would have created a whole bunch of other headaches. But anyways, yeah, no, I, 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 do, I do think that is the important point though, is that understanding the fact that there is a relationship between the quality of your code and how quickly you can get that into a production environment, um, you know, and be able to see those things because you want to see that before your customers do. Um, and again, the faster faster deployment times almost also means faster rollback times and all kinds of things like that. So yeah, super important. Hi everyone, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Open Deck Secure. OpenDeckSecure is an open source, cloud agnostic edge development framework that lets developers jump straight into product development without worrying about setup. OpenDeckSecure has frameworks and development tools to automate web asset optimization, implement resilient CDNs, and provide you with access to first-party analytics. If you need help getting started on multi-cloud serverless at the edge, take a look at OpenDeckSecure to simplify the setup and start building the product you're passionate about. Learn more at DeckSecure.com slash open-source. And if you like or support what DeckSecure is doing, join the community by visiting their project on GitHub and follow them on their journey. I think, so, so much of this stuff, right, is, is this idea of building for scale and like optimizing when you need to, maybe not optimizing prematurely, but obviously in this case, right, you're like, all right, now it's no longer premature. We need to react to this because <laughs> we have either over-optimized or under-optimized and we didn't optimize at the right time. And, and now it's time to address it. Um, ultimately, so you can build for scale and you can build toward this, uh, like uh, toward a global solution for a company that is going global. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to ask you a little bit about uh, what it means to go global, right? And that's going to probably mean also going multi-region. Um, and you have a little bit of experience with this at Intercom. You've been thinking about it a lot, especially, I'm going to say recently with air quotes, because recently can mean a lot of different, like, you know, weeks, months, probably even years at some point um, in your own mind. So could you tell us more about what that means at Intercom and this idea of like working towards multi-region and, and how you're thinking about that, both in terms of optimization, like getting yourself ready, being able to do this at scale, having the right things in place, but not too many right things in place. Yeah. Um, so over the last about eight, nine months or so, I've been working on uh, building Intercom into a European region. And 
uh, this has been something we've talked about for a long time um, and customers have asked us about it for a long time. So you know, Intercom's customer base, it's global. We've had great success selling into, um, into Europe and other places. Um, but there are certain customers or certain types of customers who are sensitive to data transfers to the United States. Uh, the legal situation has kind of um, been up in the air. There's certainly a, a good, good deal of risk and uncertainty in the area. Um, and so uh, for perfectly reasonable reasons, a um, bunch of customers just want, don't want to take on that risk. Um, and they, they want their data to stay in, in the EU or maybe other places. Um, and so for a long time, we've... Um, we've said, okay, we understand your concerns to customers and uh, we've kind of given guidance. Um, you know, we ourselves, we, we're happy to uh, to store data in the United States, um, but uh, we're also very conscious that a lot of our customers uh, simply don't. And a lot of prospective customers as well uh, just won't uh, consider using uh, services that store store their customer data in the, in the United States. Um, and so... We, we worked for a while to try and understand this, and we've done numerous exercises, like working with our business developments team, trying to figure out the opportunity, look at what we think the work would, would be involved. We had ideas around like what, what an architecture could like could look like um, and kind of positioned that against uh, the return we get. And um, it almost never, it didn't really make sense though. The numbers kind of never really worked out because we, uh, we strongly believed that um, uh, that's a build out of this scale of where we've got this huge infrastructure in, in US East One, in AWS, and trying to mimic any of that, or even just a small amount of that uh, in a new region is going to be substantial, just the, the sheer scale of the infrastructure, but also the amount of work involved in like and getting every single feature over, every single part of Intercom over. Um, so, so we always put like a pretty high premium on the amount of work there, and it's going to do nothing for our existing customers. It's not going to help out them at all. Um, so we kind of kept on on the back burner and um, kept talking about it, but not doing too much about it. Uh, and then kind of late, late last year, we decided, you know, let's just do it. <laughs> um, uh, so let's not even do, but let's not do it in a way that we're is going to guarantee success. We're going to effectively spike a as small as possible installation of Intercom and build the smallest possible thing to prove whether or not this thing can work, um, and apply like really technically conservative principles uh, to what we build out. Um, and as well, at the same time, shrinking down uh, the amount of infrastructure that uh, we used overall to, to build our intercom. So we we built out a new a few um, capabilities of like sharing workers and a few different things to allow us to do this. Um, and then rapidly over like the course of a few months, we built out enough of a what it, in effect was like a prototype of intercom in in the EU, um, but like a greatly shrunken down version of intercom. Um, uh, running uh, as as much shared stuff as possible. So whereas in USC's one, we might have literally 10 different uh, Aurora MySQL clusters. We've just got it all down on one and um, uh, and we're being very, very aggressive and running uh, the, the, the minimalist amount of, of uh, infrastructure to support all these things. Um, we also uh, found uh, 
that the best way to get work done, and there's lots of lots of changes we have to make across our code base, um, and not just in the architecture, but how how the, the large code base was ported over to this environment, um, was to just do all the work ourselves. So we didn't work across intercom, but we didn't really engage with too many teams and like try to get stuff on their roadmaps or anything. We just assembled a small team of high judgment, experienced engineers who could make a lot of progress against. Um, getting any part of Intercom working in Europe um, and doing it fast and doing it independently and not really blocking or having to be blocked on getting permission to do things or looking for advice. Um, a lot of, like I said earlier on, a lot of Intercom looks the same. It's the same kind of stuff to that build our kind of features. And we quickly established patterns um, of identifying uh, what parts of Intercom needed to be fixed up to work in the environment. Um, so we validated relatively quickly um, that hey, we can actually get this working. It does work, it boots, it, it does intercom type stuff. Um, and then uh, over the kind of last few months, we've been doing more work around kind of QA and hooking things up to sales systems and, you know, making it a professional kind of setup that we can actually sell as opposed to like just a standalone instance of intercom that, that does uh, largely work. Um, so I think the stuff that worked for us um, it was like being really aggressive and almost un but unambitious on the infrastructure and technology side. We just reused what we knew already. Um, but we also didn't want to just copy and paste. We knew that wouldn't work. We knew the setup time would be too much. Um, and so we shrunk it down as small as possible and were as aggressive pos as possible uh, when it came to that, down to that. We didn't want to have to bring over all of the scaling decisions made over the previous 10 years of Intercom into this new environment where we'll probably get away with not having to make the same decisions for years and years and years um, as customers kind of slowly um, uh, move over to it or, or, or spun up on it. Um, and so uh, I think for the regionalization work, you know, it was, it was uh, other things that led to kind of certainty or led us to make progress on it was being certain around what types of data need to stay in the EU and what types can leave. And because we want to, we want to build our customers and we want to do it at one place. We don't want to have to have multiple billing systems, multiple Salesforce installs, um, all this kind of stuff. But we know our customers customers' data don't, does, uh, cannot leave the EU. And so we were able to make clear demarcations um, around those things. And um, we, we still got a bit to go. Uh, we've got beta customers. Uh, it's been good fun. Um, and we've learned a lot about QAing an application, which has stayed in one place for 10 years. And then suddenly we're trying to get it working <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, that's definitely had to have a few different approaches. We had like a, a top-down approach where we would pick a feature and see does it work. And then we had almost infrastructure up of where we pick a bit of infrastructure and go, what's this used for? Or like an SQSQ is like, this, let's figure out like, where it? this is used. Um, <laughs> right. And almost like tracing in two different directions. Uh, and between that and between beta usage, you know, we've uh, got a something which largely works and uh, we're willing to kind of put in front of customers. Um, I think so. Uh, I think there's probably some interesting blog posts and future talks about this kind of stuff. I think um, for us, we were never able to get the full certainty that it was worth doing it. Um, but what really unlocked it was doing it as small as possible, um, but also be willing to fail. Like the, um, we were happy to just try this for three months. If it doesn't work, we'll walk away, come back to it again. Maybe we've got a better business case. Uh, but we were able to build something, validate it that it works, and then just start to do the rest of the work in the meantime. And so we're hopefully at the kind of end of that cycle at the moment. So I, I think it's funny that you're talking about multi-region um, infrastructure, which some people sort of talk about cavalierly. Is that a word? Um, you know, that they're like, yeah, oh, yeah multi-region is not, not a problem, right? Um, and you're talking about having some of your best engineers, right? They can, you know, make those decisions. Um, 
running an experiment to try to see if it would even work um, and then actually, you know, having to make all of these, you know, changes and, and do all these different experiments just to get it up and running. And I was trying to come up with some joke about uh, Ireland and old castles and dragons. I just couldn't, I can't formulate it in my head. But basically, there, I mean, I think you found there are a lot of dragons, right, that you that, that you hit up against for this. And, and I guess the question is, if you have somebody else especially a smaller company, I'm thinking about going multi-region, like, can you just tell them, like, you know, don't, or really, really think about it? I mean, I'd, I would tell people don't. Uh, I mean, like, when I worked at Amazon.com, uh, it, was, it was a pretty large business. Um, I worked there before uh, for Intercom. Um, and, like, reasonably successful as an online retailer. Uh, it was a single region. It, it, it worked well, you know. Um, uh, I think multi-region stuff is hard. Um, if you haven't been baking it in uh, from very early on um, and you keep building features and and, and keep um, storing data in lots of places, uh, it, 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 it just greatly increases the difficulty of um, making, of ensuring that your data is kind of portable or that your application is portable into, into a new environment and that it'll boot and just work. Um, Intercom is 10 years old. We just have 10 years worth of features to mm. to, to try and figure out, uh, do they work at all? And all have kind of interesting bits of configuration. And, you know, our code base is so large that there's there's different styles and just diff um, uh, a, a large amount of work uh, to just get a lot of it working. Um, so, you know, I think uh, understanding whether multi-region is important to your business early on um, can kind of help you shape uh, how easy it is uh, by by doing upfront work uh, to make sure you, you might you like making stuff portable such that uh, you could move data for a customer from one place to another. I think that's very important. Just like deciding what is what data needs to be portable, um, and then uh, deciding which kind of building blocks are essential uh, to your infrastructure. Uh, we were able to strip off um, large amounts of kind of ancillary things that like. For example, we we run query killers against our MySQL databases that look out for uh, very naughty queries that take up a lot of resources. Um, but we decided there's no way we we're going to deploy these out into an environment which has a small number of customers. And you know, if a query went bad, we'd probably find out about it and fix it or something like that. There's a bunch of things that we were doing at high scale that we probably won't have to do for years and years in in the new environment. So we're able to uh, really minimize that and uh, just not deploy a lot of stuff uh, and knowing what that is uh, can can make your life a lot easier. I spent a little time, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I want to get, I want to make sure we can cover this. I spent a little time doing one of my favorite things, which was learning about you through what you tweet. <laughs> uh, and one of my, a tweet that I really enjoyed um, was a retweet that you did, uh, Patrick Collison, who's like the CEO at Stripe, right? And he, he talks about why, how he ruined ducks for himself. And it's because he assigned, you know, a custom ringtone to his pager duty and he chose the duck sound from the iPhone uh, and a lot of problems and pages followed. And then, you know, years later, he's walking through a park and he hears like a soft quack, which how cute would that be? You know, how nice is that? And instead, <laughs> he, shivered, a trigger. <laughs> yeah, he shivered involuntarily and his pulse quickened. And that's how he ruined ducks for himself. And I thought that was the, the perfect tweet for this thing that you talk about a lot, Brian, which is... um you were able to turn a point of pain into a point of pride for your engineering team and really to build this engineering culture at Intercom um, regarding out of hours on call work. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
what the pain, I mean, I think we all know, or especially those people who are ever assigned to, you know, pager duty um, and on-call hours know what that pain is. But if you could walk through some of the steps that you apply to say like, wow, this is actually like burning us out. And here are the ways that we approach this problem. And here are ways that I think other people might be able to A, figure out like, this is where we start. And this is how we turn that pain into pride. Yeah, two of the biggest influences actually came from my time at Amazon. Um, so one was, I was paged a lot at Amazon. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was determined uh, to not put other people through this. Um, and that uh, when I joined Intercoms, like, I want this to be, to be a great place to work. And I don't want to have to uh, build out an infrastructure or build an environment of where uh, we have like a really high on-call load. So that was definitely a big motivation. Uh, but another one was an interesting one. Um, for a long time, uh, S3 had one person on call and S3 uh, was relatively large even back then. Uh, I can't imagine the size of it now. Um, and then I looked at Intercom back then, say four or five years ago, and we had like six, seven people on call and we were nowhere near S3 scale. I was like, this is kind of silly. Um, <laughs> and it, the load of on call was really different depending on which team you're in. And like one of the things that we like to do in Intercom is we change our team layout a lot. Like we we are pretty responsive to um, like the what we're building and uh, we change ownership of things a lot. And there's like some small problems that comes out of that. But uh, one of the, the uh, good things about it is like allows people to like get involved in different things and like grow in different directions and, and just like try out different teams. Um, but it, then we suddenly we had this barrier of some teams uh, people were avoiding joining some teams because it happens that their area of work involved them owning a load of Elasticsearch clusters. And we had other teams which basically had no on-call and were never getting paged in the middle of the night. So this like unevenness of um, of on-call being applied across different parts of Intercom just seems like a barrier to um, like flexibility in, in Intercom. Um, and I wanted to do a good job here and have get get to S3's level of having one person on call. Um, and so we figured we could also make it volunteer based. And this is a big element of why I think it was successful. Um, you know, uh, as a uh, as a systems engineer uh, at different times of my career, I've had things like uh, new, newborn children in my house and stuff. And um, it's not always that it's just because you're working in operations teams or, or you've got a background in, in systems engineering, you don't necessarily want to be doing 24-7 on-call. It's, right. you know, it's it, it can be fun. And you, uh, in some places, it's kind of part of the job. But uh, I think like being able to opt in and opt out, uh, depending on where your career is at, depending where you're um, uh, your on your personal preferences or what's going on in your life, like that seems pretty attractive and a nice way of um, of of making this um, uh, more of an opportunity rather than like a burden that people get of just being on certain types of teams. So we built a volunteer-led on-call um, setup where we have one person on call for all of Intercom. Um, I refer back to it again, but Intercom is, tends to be built out of the same stuff over and over. So uh, it's that actually adds a lot to uh, just the, the possibility of being able to do this um, is that like you tend to get uh, pages for the same kind of things with certain patterns that kind of come out like this SQSQ is full or we're getting 500s on this load balancer um, or this database is slowed down tends to be a load of those things uh, quite frequently um, and so we made on call as well uh, something that you not just opted in you were there for a while the idea being you do like say six months in a bit of six person 
on-call operation, we would emphasize the kind of learning involved and give support um, and help and make it something that uh, we would celebrate and, you know, shows up in people's uh, promotion documents and, uh, and annual reviews and things like that and really celebrated the benefits. I guess one of the other things we did was got really ruthless on alarms um, yes. and we turned off so many alarms and we also review every alarm that fires. And there seems to be like this social pressure of like, if you get somebody out of your own team out of bed uh, to deal with something, it's like you kind of tolerate it. But if you get somebody who you've never met out of bed at three in the morning, um, you're kind of more likely to go and fix it because you don't want to do that again. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, so we've found that by paying attention to every single alarm that fires uh, out of hours and uh, opening an issue with the teams and um, giving them kind of feedback on it, we've gotten really good at maintaining uh, the, the list of paging alarms uh, down to like roughly what's necessary and that has then fed into making the on-call uh, really healthy in itself um, and sustainable and where people aren't aren't just growing and getting paid for on-call and all that stuff is nice um, but they're not getting paid that often either and we've had good streaks of where I've been on call for a week and just gotten zero pages which is uh, kind of cool. Yeah, and that's and that's the big thing, which I think um, some companies don't understand. Like, hey, we sign up for pager duty, or we have this other thing, and it suddenly on call becomes on duty because like you're just expect you're gonna get 15 pages or whatever while you're on call one night. Um, and and there's a big difference between being on call and on duty. Um, and if you have so many problems that you need an engineer just watching stuff 24 hours a day. You got to pay an engineer to watch stuff 24 hours a day. If you, but if you're going to go this on call route um, and and make people sane, then you have to. I mean, it's got to be an emergency when that when that pager goes off. It's got to be something that is significantly affecting things. And I, I know you mentioned like you getting aggressive about turning those. Um, uh, turning some of those servers or turning some of those pages off. I mean, another thing that is a big topic here is resiliency, right? Like sometimes a service can go down, might be able to recover on its own. I mean, you might not need to page somebody when a service goes down if you've built that resiliency in and it has some time to recover. Now, if it doesn't recover, then okay, well, now maybe you have to page somebody. But I think those are the kind of things and those are the kind of strategies, which, by the way, it's really hard for small teams to do because there's an investment in all of mm -hmm. that stuff to make that work. But um, but yeah, I think, that's, I think that's great advice. And I think certainly if you are working for a company right now and you're getting paged all the time when you're on call, bring that up with your manager um, and say, hey, this is this is not the way it should be. Uh, and maybe we should make some investment towards this. Yeah, I, th I think it's really great for things like retention and for uh, helping people grow. I think I try to think of on call as a positive thing, even though I'm, I've got plenty of scars and, uh, <laughs> and you know, not everything goes well. It's like from we those dragons. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, you know, we, we we have bad pages. We have stuff that goes on, that that breaks and breaks in ways that it shouldn't, and all that. But uh, just kind of keeping that under control and making sure that people feel feel in control of the situation of when they're on call, that they're respected, that uh, when they when they are paged, uh, it's probably valuable. I mean, that that means that like it's it, we're applying a good good quality right. bar to what's going off, and um, I think that uh, that helps a lot with uh, maintaining good good quality and overall good customer service as a result of we know what's important when it breaks or not. Even though you can't see our listeners, I think every single one who is a you know software engineer is like vigorously head nodding. They're like, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, well, on behalf of you know engineers everywhere, thank you for sharing uh, not only all of your knowledge, but I think especially this like type of cultural impact that could kind of can really change people's lives and like the mm -hmm. way they approach their work and the way they feel about their work. 
Um, so I know that Intercom is hiring, just saying engineers out there who are listening. Um, and thank you so much for joining us and sharing everything with the community. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how our listeners can find out more about you and um, find some of your work, which I think is really cool. The, the Intercom Engineering blog as well. So give us a few of those and we'll drop those uh, links into our show notes as well. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, Brian underscore Scanlon. And um, I'm somewhere on LinkedIn. I, I can't remember how to search for me on LinkedIn. I don't do it that You're very You're a Scanlon B. Okay. So <laughs> um, and yeah, intercom.engineering or just intercom.com slash blog. Uh, intercom.engineering will bring, bring you to uh, a place where we showcase a bunch of our engineering stuff. Um, but there's loads of stuff on the Intercom blog. I'm, I'm up there every so often. Um, and we've got a pretty decent podcast where also I show up every so often as well. Awesome. Yeah, and that article that we talked so much about you, uh, talked so so about with you so much um is also like on the front page of that engineering blog so if you all want to read it for yourselves you can find it right there it's great awesome thanks brian thanks so much brian it's been great thank you so much And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Brian Scanlon for being our guest this week and to our sponsors, Lamigo and Dexsecure. If you want to check out the show notes and the full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 119. For more serverless chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odelay and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>